Well, will you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, as we begin the final chapter in this great book, and as we come to the resurrection of our Lord. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Matthew chapter 28 And verses 1 through 10, this is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most satisfying things about taking on a home renovation project is just taking the before and after photos. Uh, When we bought our home four years ago, we knew that it needed a ton of work. Uh, The house had really good bones, but when it came to the interior fit and finish, uh, there were lots of, uh, let's say, questionable design choices. There were substandard materials that had been used, there were shoddy installations, and a decade of deferred maintenance and just total neglect had left it in pretty rough condition. And yet Marianne and I could see the potential. We could see what it could possibly become, and we we saw in it an opportunity to buy a home that we could never otherwise afford. And so we bought it and we began that renovation process, cleaning and gutting and turning it into something beautiful and useful for our family. And you know, every once in a while, we will just look back at the before and after photos and we will just enjoy them and remember what once was. Oh yeah, that wall was there. And now it's gone. Uh, That wasn't a door. That was a window. Remember that hideous chandelier? Remember that awful paint color? 
and look at it now. Look what it has become. That's the thing about before and after photos, is they give you a sense both of the continuity on the one hand and of the discontinuity on the other hand. It's the same house, many of the same walls, the same structural integrity, and yet it's so completely changed and renovated that it feels brand new. The resurrection is a renovation project on another level. It is God's renovation project. And when we compare Matthew's account of the crucified Christ in chapter 27 with his account of the resurrected Christ in 28, it's like we're looking at before and after photos. Is this the same Jesus? Is this the same body that was bloodied and bruised? The same one who was marred beyond human semblance? Is this the same man? Because the renovation and the renewal is so thorough and so transformational that we can hardly believe our eyes. To use the language of Paul, the perishable has put on the imperishable. What was sown, like a seed is sown in the ground, what was sown in dishonor has been raised in glory. What was sown in weakness has been raised in power. What was sown a natural body has been raised a spiritual body. With the resurrection, everything has changed. And when I say everything has changed, I mean everything has changed. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the renovation of one man in one body. The resurrection of Christ is the start of a whole new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And this is a renovation that, when it is completed, will be so thorough and it will be so complete that it will extend not just to humanity, but to the entire created universe. It changes everything. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this glorious passage of Scripture before us today. And I want to draw your attention to three features of the resurrection. First, that this resurrection is a trembling event. Uh, We see that in verses 1 through 4. We see that in the trembling of the earth, but also in the trembling of the guards who become like dead men before the tomb of our Lord. Uh, Secondly, it's not only a trembling event, it's a triumphant event. We see that in verses 5 through 10. We hear it in the message of the angel, and we hear it in the message of the resurrected Christ. It is a trembling event, and it is a triumphant event. And finally, it is a transformational event. And we see this in the way that the Bible interprets this event to us and explains its significance, not just for us, but for the whole world. 
And so first, we see that it's a trembling event. Look at verse 1 with me. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now you'll remember that these two Marys were present at the cross when Jesus died. When everyone else had fled away, they were there. And they were there when Joseph of Arimathea had come and taken down the body of Jesus and laid it in his tomb. They were there, Matthew tells us, sitting opposite the tomb, grieving. That was Friday. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. And on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees were petitioning Pilate to seal the tomb and to set a guard. But these women were resting. They were observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy to the Lord. But when the Sabbath had ended, that evening, as as the sun had set, the other Gospels tell us that these women began to gather spices and that they had planned to come and to anoint the body of Jesus early the next morning. But there was something that they didn't know. They didn't know what the Pharisees and the chief priests were up to. They didn't know that the tomb had been sealed. They didn't know that it was surrounded by a Roman guard. And so that's where Matthew picks things up in chapter 28. It's now after the Sabbath. The sun is just beginning to rise in the east, and the women are making their way to the tomb. And he gives us this this timestamp, this temporal component, which is very important. But it's more than just a timestamp. It's more than just him telling us it's the next day. This is the dawning of a new creation. The first creation is giving way to a new creation, even as the old Sabbath is giving way to the Lord's Day and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the two Marys don't know that yet. For them, it's just a very difficult morning. It's just the start of another week, and this week is a week filled with grief. Their Savior is gone. And while we don't know both of their stories, we know Mary Magdalene's story. We know that Jesus had delivered her and set her free from her seven demons. We know that He had healed her, that He had forgiven her, that he had restored her meaning and purpose and life to her. And we know that she, together with the other Mary, had been fulfilling that purpose because they were living for Jesus. Matthew tells us that these two women had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, and they had been there every step of the way ministering to his needs, Matthew says. They were doing what disciples of Jesus do. They were living for Jesus. They were giving themselves back to him who had given them everything. They loved him. And now he was gone. And so as they're coming to the tomb, they come with heavy hearts filled with grief. They come overwhelmed with pain. They come crushed with disappointment. 
I remember C.S. Lewis describing grief like being concussed. Like that temporary unconsciousness and confusion that comes after being hit over the head. He said, when he was explaining his own grief, he said, it's like there's an invisible blanket between the world and me so that I find it hard to take in what anybody says. Like if you're underwater trying to listen to someone speak. If you have lost someone that you have loved deeply, you understand what he's describing. He's describing an indescribable ache. He's describing a knot in your stomach and a lump in your throat. All the world is going on around you, but you're in a fog. The two Marys are coming in the fog of grief to the tomb. And now imagine how their grief is heightened as they arrive to find that the tomb has been sealed. It's been sealed with a Roman seal, and a Roman guard has been stationed before the tomb, preventing anyone from entering it. These women who had ministered to Jesus in life, now all they want to do is minister to him in death. They want to mourn him. They want to anoint him. They want to say their goodbyes. But now it seems that even that is being taken away from them. And yet just as they're taking all of this in, something extraordinary happens, doesn't it? Behold. Matthew loves that word, behold. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You remember an earthquake had attended Jesus' death on Friday. Now another great earthquake attends his resurrection on Sunday. It's like the whole creation long ago subjected to futility, is convulsing with labor pains as the grave is giving up the Son of God. And attending this event are these angelic messengers. The other Gospels tell us that there were actually two angels. Matthew only mentions the one, the one who rolled back the stone from the tomb and then plopped himself down on top of it. And he is absolutely glorious in appearance. His clothes are as white as snow and his appearance was like lightning. Matthew is the only one who uses that particular description, that his appearance was like lightning. Have you ever seen lightning up close? I mean really up close. One year at RYC, we had this huge thunderstorm roll in and the sky became as dark as I have ever seen the sky in the middle of the day. And so we sent all the kids uh, rushing back to their cabins with their counselors to wait out the storm. And I was just standing up in Cypress Hall, which is our, our staff uh, hall. And I was standing there with another staff member, and we were just chatting when suddenly lightning struck right in front of us. There was no warning, right? Uh, there was no delay. There was just the flash and the crash at the exact same moment. And it was terrifying, and we jumped. 
what surprised me was how incredibly bright it was. What a contrast it made with the dark sky. That, that, that flash just seemed to light up everything around us. That's the way that Matthew describes the appearance of this angel. Now, it's not entirely clear whether it, it refers to his appearance in terms of his coming or his appearance as he sits there as though his, his radiance or his countenance is like lightning. Either way, it's both awesome and terrifying, isn't it? So much so that all of the Gospels uh, recount the appearance of this angel. And the guards are terrified. Matthew says, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Uh, there is this corresponding trembling of the earth on the one hand losing control and the guards on the other hand losing control. In fact, it's the same Greek word, just in, a, in different forms, that describes, it's, it's the word seismos, the same word from which we get our English word seismic, that describes the trembling of the earth and the trembling of the men, and the fear is so intense that the Bible says that they became like dead men. You have to love the irony here, don't you? They became like dead men, even as the dead man, the man that they put to death, is coming to life, even as he comes to life, they are falling over like they are dead. It is truly a trembling event, the very kind of seismic event that the prophets foretold would attend the day of the Lord. And this is the day of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. But that trembling is just a herald of the triumph that has just occurred. It's a trembling event, and it is a triumphant event. And these women get to be the first recipients of this triumphant news. Uh, so read it with me. We read that the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now there's four things that I want you to take note of about this message. The first thing is that it is a message of reassurance. The same messenger who strikes fear into the hearts of the guards is sent by the Lord to calm the fears of these women. Fear is obviously the very natural response. But as we have just seen with the guards, fear can be rather paralyzing, can't it? Fear can literally sap us of our strength and prevent us from taking action, and the Lord would not have that. Not for these women, and certainly not today. He would not have them miss the joy of the occasion because they are to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of his son. And so he sends his angel to calm their fears, and he commands them, do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. How does that command fall when you are afraid? Easier said than done. But you know, I think the commands of God do not always just give information. The commands of God often give strength. They give strength to perform what is commanded. Augustine said it this way, command what you will, but give what you command. And God does not just command these women not to fear. He gives what he commands. He gives them to the courage to do what even these battle-tested soldiers cannot do. No one doubted the courage of Roman soldiers. They faced death every single day. People often doubted the courage of women. And yet God gives what he commands. And while the, while the guards are all unconscious at their feet, the women stand and hear the message of the angel And they need to hear it. Because this message is not only, it's not only a message of reassurance, it's an announcement. And it is the greatest single announcement ever made in the history of the whole world. Jesus whom you seek, he is not here. He is risen, as he said. You know, on five different occasions, Jesus said that he was going to rise from the dead. And now the empty tomb stands as a witness to what he had said, to the truth of his claim. But it's more than that. The empty tomb stands as a witness to the triumph of Jesus over sin and death. Because what is the tomb if not the symbol of death? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that means that as long as Jesus' body is still laying in that tomb, as long as he's still under the power of death, there's no proof that the wages of sin have actually been paid. But the opposite is true as well, isn't it? That the very moment that Jesus is made alive, and the very moment that he comes up from the grave, that moment stands as proof positive to all the world that the wages of sin have been paid and that death, the curse of sin, has been defeated. This is not just an announcement of his absence from the tomb. This is an announcement of his presence and of his triumph over the tomb. And that brings us to a third thing about this message, and that is... This message comes with an invitation. Come. Come and see the place where he lay. And that tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us what many commentators have noted before, but I think is useful to say. The angel did not roll away the stone in order to let Jesus out. He rolled away the stone in order to let the women in. Come and see. And that means the angel does not simply ask them to take his word for it. He doesn't say he's risen. No, just believe me. Like the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. No. He says, come. Look behind the curtain. Look behind the stone. See the place where he lay. 
He invites them in to examine the evidence. The tomb is empty. It was empty that day, and it is empty today. And the empty tomb is a fact of history. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history. That he who was crucified, dead, and buried is not there. He's risen. Bodily risen. I emphasize bodily because there are many preachers who will tell you that this was some sort of ideal resurrection or spiritual resurrection. A resurrection of his memory. A resurrection of his influence. That he lives on in his words. That he lives on in his example. Nonsense. Bruner says it like this. Many great figures in history live on in their words and works. But these historical figures are not themselves alive. Yet Jesus of Nazareth not only lives on in his historical and remarkable teaching and in his powerful influence, he himself is fully, personally, and even corporally, that is, in the body, alive. And the angel's invitation to them is to come and to see and to examine the evidence for themselves to believe not on the absence of evidence, but to believe on the basis of evidence. The fourth thing about this message, it's not only a message of reassurance, it's not only an announcement, it not only comes with an invitation, you see that it comes with a mission. And once you have seen, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Uh, Many apologists make the point over the years uh, that one of the greatest evidences for the historicity of the account of the resurrection is the very fact that these women are to be the first witnesses. And the reason that is so persuasive is because in the ancient world, in a Jewish court, women could not serve as a witness. Their testimony was considered unreliable. They could only serve as a supplementary witness if a man was there. And so if you were making up an account of the resurrection from the dead, and if you wanted that account to be compelling, you wouldn't have women be your eyewitnesses. It would be dismissed. They were not allowed to testify. But clearly, Jesus has a revolutionary idea of who matters. And he was pleased to honor these women, not just as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but as the first ones to bear witness to the resurrection. One commentator I wrote said, they become like apostles to the apostles. An apostle just means the sent ones, right? They are sent to the disciples to bring the message that Jesus is risen, that he is alive. And that message includes something more, doesn't it? 
It surely must have filled them with joy to be so privileged to announce this message. But there's something more that fills them with joy. There you will see him. Not only had he risen, not only did they get to be the messengers, they were going to get to see Jesus. Jesus, whom they loved. Jesus, whom they were, they were just dying to see. It's no wonder that the Bible tells us that they departed quickly from the tomb, right? And with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Little did they know that Jesus wasn't going to make them wait. He wasn't going to make them wait until they got all the way back up to Galilee. He was going to meet them now, and he does. Behold, there's that word again. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Just imagine their joy. The joy in seeing their Savior. The joy in hearing his voice. Their joy in his calming of their fears. What they hoped for was true. What every shred of evidence led them to believe was true in this moment is confirmed as true. That Jesus is alive. Imagine their awe, their wonder. Imagine if you had attended a funeral on Friday and on Sunday you got a a knock at your door and you went to the door to answer it and, and there was the person who had died. And their response is perfect. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. In this one little phrase, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. We have actually one of the most beautiful and succinct statements of what we call the hypostatic union. I know that's a big theological term. But we're simply talking about the union of the two natures, the full humanity and the full deity in the one man, Jesus Christ. He has feet, right? He's a man. He has feet that can be bowed before, feet that can be clung to, and yet he is bowed before, and he is worshipped, and he receives the worship. You know, there's lots of places in the Bible where this same thing happens. In fact, almost the exact same phrase is used in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius, Peter comes to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius bows down before him and begins to worship him and Peter says, whoa, I'm just a man. The same thing happens to Paul. He comes and and they fall down before him and they begin to worship him and he says, no, no, no. We are men of like passions with you. The same thing happens to an angel in Revelation and he says, get up. Don't worship me. Why? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But Jesus, Jesus does not correct them. He consents to them. 
He even compels them to worship because it's right and it's proper and it's fitting because he is the Lord. And even as they are worshiping them, him, he speaks to them and he, he joins the message of the angel, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. On the one hand, the message is very much the same as the message of the angel, isn't it? He comforts the women and commands them not to be afraid. And he commissions the women uh, that they should bring this resurrection message and, and speak of the news that they'll see him in Galilee. But you know, there is, there's one word that is different between the message of the angel and the message of Jesus. Maybe you caught it. The angel says, go and tell his disciples. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. Even though they had abandoned him, even though they had denied him, even though they were in hiding because of him, he was not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus was not coming to scold them. He was coming to restore them. And he would want them to know that they are his brothers. That is as much the triumph of the resurrection as anything. That through the resurrection of Jesus, we might be counted as brothers. That we might be members of the family and household of God. The resurrection is a trembling event. The resurrection is a triumphant event. And finally, the resurrection is a transformational event. In conclusion, I I want to just say a few things about how the Bible itself interprets the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is a fact of history, but there are no uninterpreted facts of history. And the Bible gives us its own interpretation of this fact of history. And its interpretation is that it changes everything. It is a transformational event that nothing is the same since Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, This week I began to list all the things that have changed. And then I began to whittle down the list. And I'm just going to give you seven here at the end. Seven ways that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. First, it changes the whole history of the world. In Acts chapter 17, Paul divides all of history into two stages. Pastor Crawford mentioned it earlier. The time before the resurrection of Jesus and the time after the resurrection of Jesus. He says the time before, the times of ignorance, God is overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. And he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus truly marks the beginning of a new creation. And we live in between the times, between the first coming of Jesus and between his second coming as the resurrected Son of God. That means that now... As the apostles say, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when the gospel is being proclaimed, when the message is being heralded to trust 
in Jesus Christ to repent of your sins and to look in faith to Christ. The resurrection changes all of history. But you know, the second thing is that the resurrection does not change, just simply change the history of the world. It changes the histories of individuals. It changes your history. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, the Bible says. You were once walking according to the principalities and the powers of this present evil age. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Resurrection. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead continues to raise people from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. It changes history, and it changes your history. And third, the resurrection changes your fear of condemnation. Because it changes your personal history, it changes your fear of condemnation. The Bible says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. That is, He was crucified for our transgressions and He was raised for our justification. And because we are justified, we may say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, what is it? He has been raised. It is God who justifies. The fourth thing the resurrection changes is your present life. Because you are no longer under any condemnation because Christ Jesus is the one who has died, and more than that, who has been raised, because God is the one who is justified. The resurrection becomes the engine of your sanctification. As you are raised to walk in newness of life, it becomes the power over which you subdue sins. Paul says in Romans 4 that we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised. As Christians, it's nothing less than resurrection life that renovates and empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The fifth thing that the resurrection changes is not just life, it changes death. Through the resurrection of Christ, death has been defeated and one day will be destroyed. After that whole beautiful treatment on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That means your death is no longer death. There has been the death of death and the death of Christ and the death of death in the resurrection of Christ. As the hymn writer says, 
Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage, then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find their hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. Jesus is the first fruits of one grand harvest of resurrection, and if he has been raised from the dead, so one day he will also raise us from the dead and give life and immortality to these mortal bodies. The resurrection changes death. The resurrection changes, sixth, your sense of purpose and meaning in life. Paul says that you have been given a new purpose and meaning in life. And that you are called to no longer live for yourself, but to live for him who for your sakes died and was raised. That is what your life is to be about, about living for Christ. And we can have the assurance that as we live for Christ and as we work for Christ, we're not wasting our time, we're not wasting our life. We're actually fulfilling our purpose. Uh, I love the way that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians ends As Paul brings it to a conclusion, he talks about the victory that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, brothers, therefore, because the resurrection is true, because the resurrection is true, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, our labors for Christ are not a vanity. They are endued with eternal significance. And finally, number seven, the resurrection changes our future. Peter tells us that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and that this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Because of the resurrection, we have hope of eternal life. Because of the resurrection, we do not mourn as others who mourn. We do not grieve as others who grieve. We hope not just for this life, but we hope for that heavenly inheritance. We have been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have hope that your loved ones who have rested in Christ will live and that you who have rested in Christ will live. Beloved, the resurrection changes everything. And let me tell you, the before and after photos are nothing short of glorious. They were nothing short of glorious for Jesus. And they will be nothing short of glorious for us. Jesus is risen. And because he is risen, because he lives, we can know him, love him, worship him, speak to him, pray to him, and hear him speak to us. And one day we have the promise that we too will see him. That we are going to the place of resurrection. And there, like the women, we'll be able to fall at his feet and to worship him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. 
O Lord, how we thank You for the message of the resurrection, for the hope that it gives us, for the way in which You have conquered and triumphed over death and hell and the devil, the way in which You have triumphed over our sins, the way in which You have brought life and immortality to life through the Gospel. And Lord, we pray that even today as we meditate and reflect on the resurrection, as we uh, stand before the empty tomb, Lord, we pray that You would fill our hearts to overflowing with joy that we might worship the risen Christ, that we might live our lives for His glory and honor, that we might stand with this ground of assurance that death has been defeated as surely as you rose from the dead, you left our sins buried in that tomb, never to rise up against us, even at the day of judgment. And Lord, we pray then that you would make us uh, to live lives pleasing to you and that the resurrection would be the engine and power of that sanctifying grace until you come again. Lord, we love you and we long to see you face to face. We long for that day when you will come again in glory and in power. We long to fall at your feet and to worship you. Until then, Lord, we pray that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through your word, and that you would build us up in comfort and hope. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, the Lord's Supper is, of course, a memorial meal in which we are called to remember what our Savior has done for us, for our salvation. But it's more than a memorial meal. Uh, it is a meal of communion, in union with Christ. And Christ is truly here by His Spirit. But He is here by His Spirit because He is bodily sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. And because He sits on that glorious throne we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven. And today, He would commune with us by His Holy Spirit and through these sacraments. It's as though this table extends all the way up into heaven. It's like a massive, one grand massive banqueting table where Jesus sits on one end and we sit on the other. And by faith, we come and we feed upon His body and blood to nourish us and strengthen us. This meal is a meal that Jesus gives us that we should celebrate. We should not come to this meal just, you know, with glum faces and in a dour way. This meal is a celebration. It's a celebration that death has been defeated. And it's a celebration that our sins have been forgiven. So as we come to this table today, let's come with joy and gladness in our hearts. Even the joy of resurrection life. And know that God has conquered death and hell because the tomb is empty. Now this is a meal that belongs to Christians. It belongs to those who belong to Jesus Christ. Those who have professed their faith in Him. Who are walking in faith and in repentance. And if that's true of you, then we welcome you to join us in this celebratory meal today. But if that's not true of you if, you, if you know that you do not belong to Christ, uh, if you are not a baptized member of His church, and if you are not walking in faith and repentance, then let me, let me ask you to just allow these elements to pass. But also remember that Christ is present. 
and do not allow him to pass, but like the beggar at the side of the road, cry out to him. And he promises that whoever calls upon his name will be saved. And so let's ask this morning that the Lord would take these ordinary elements then and set them apart now for this holy use. Let's pray. O Lord our God, even now as we come to your table, we feel our unworthiness. And yet even with our unworthiness, like the women who ran with both fear and joy, we fear, feel joy welling up in our hearts because we know that death is conquered. We know that the wages of sin have been paid. And we know that your sitting at the right hand of the Father on high is proof to all the world. And Lord, we do not fear your coming again in judgment. We long for that day, that day when you come not to deal with sins, but to to save those who are eagerly waiting for you, to bring us into that heavenly inheritance, to raise our bodies from the dust. And Lord, we pray that even as we partake of this meal today, that it would be a sign and seal to us of all of those promises, that we would receive those promises with faith and that we would live in them and rest in them, that we would have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so take now these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.